Hi, my name is David. The Old Testament reading is found in 1 Samuel 14, 1 through 7. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man carrying his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Sena. The one crag rose up on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor-bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Nora. The New Testament reading is found in 3 John, verses 13 through 15. I have a lot to say to you, but I don't want to use pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will speak face to face. Peace be with you. Your friends here greet you. Greet our friends there by name. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Pam, and thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in John 15, verses 12 through 17. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to Lord Christ. Let's remain standing as we pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you that you call us as a people. You form us as a family in your name and to your glory. We pray now that as we listen to your word being read and being taught, that you would open up our hearts to see Jesus, to hear your voice, and to welcome the work of your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you. My name's Glenn Packiam. I get to serve as the lead pastor here for New Life Downtown. Uh, we are a few weeks into a series called Kingdom and Chaos. 
And uh, it's a series through, through a book in the, in the Bible, particularly a book in the Old Testament, uh, called 1 Samuel. And 1 Samuel tells the story of Israel moving from a, a collection of sort of regional tribal uh, chiefs into a united nation with a king and uh, a monarchy, actually. But this, we've called it Kingdom in Chaos, not only because that sounds like a nice Netflix series, um, which I will say every week, um, but, also, but also because uh, it is the story of how we either participate in God's kingdom arriving on earth as it is in heaven, and therefore uh, partner with God in it, or resist it and introduce more and more chaos into the world. And so you kind of see both pieces of this as we go through this story. Now, previously in Kingdom and Chaos... In a couple episodes ago, we saw Israel with their foolish demand for a king and saying, God, give us a king. And it wasn't that God necessarily was against this. There's even signs that maybe God knew this was going to be part of the way, but it was that they were demanding it at the wrong time and the wrong type of king and really for the wrong reasons because they wanted to be like everyone else. But even then, God says, okay, I'll find a way to work with even what you think and what could, could have been your greatest mistake. I'll improvise with you. That's how redemption works. I can get the story back on track. But then last week, dun, 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 more ominous music, we saw how Saul, right after being warned about obeying God, proceeds to disobey God spectacularly. This morning, we're going to look at a chapter that's sandwiched in between. Last week, we spent a lot of time on 1 Samuel 13 and 1 Samuel 15. But right in between there, in 1 Samuel 14, is the story of Jonathan and his battle, the fight that he wages. But this episode is really about friendship. It's about our friends and the fight that we're in in life. Now, when you think about this, you know, this, the story uses a, a particular name here. It's not technically Jonathan's friend, but I think it's a metaphor to us about friendship. But the, the person in the story is called an armor bearer, Jonathan's armor bearer. Now, armor bearer, I think, only appears about 14 times in the Old Testament, and nine of those times is in this half chapter of 1 Samuel 14. In other words, most of what we know about armors comes from this story. And so right off the bat, we need, to, we need to clear up some misconceptions, okay? Maybe you hear the word armor bearer and you think caddy for a soldier. You know, like, well, which, which sword would you like to use, sir? You know? <laughs> but this is not a caddy. This is a co-fighter. In fact, an armor bearer was a skilled warrior, and he was there, yes, to help protect the honor of the person that he was serving, but they themselves were young and full of life and able to join in the battle, as we'll see this morning. Now, when you think about this, friendship and battle, the stuff that we're in in life, and maybe it causes a number of thoughts to rise in you, and, and maybe you start to think about whether or not you have the kinds of friends you've hoped for in life. And you think, well, I got the battle, but I don't have the friends. I am in the fight of my life, but I don't have the right people around me. You know, an interesting survey recently discovered that 43% of Americans say, so they self-report, that they lack companionship and meaning in their relationships. 43%. By my rough math, that's almost half. Almost half of Americans say, yeah, I, I lack genuine companionship. And, and even the relationships I have, they don't seem to be meaningful. And, and furthermore, one in five Americans actually say that they never feel close to anyone. 
And they never feel close to others. One in five say, I rarely feel close to another person. I just don't know how to do this. Uh, a team of researchers then put together a loneliness scale. And you know, when, when social scientists do this, you have to find different metrics and different ways to kind of measure things that are so unquantifiable. And so they developed something called the loneliness scale, and they discovered by generation, by generations that are living right now, Gen Xers are the loneliest generation. They scored highest on the loneliness scale. Now, I wonder why that is. Maybe it's a bit of stage of life stuff. Maybe it's, uh, who knows all the reasons that contribute to this. You would need more in-depth qualitative analysis to discover that. But the least lonely living generation are those that are 72 and above. That's interesting. Yeah, so my parents' generation, they're like, yep, that's right. <laughs> the least lonely are the ones that are saying, now what is it that they know that we don't? Or maybe they've had a lifetime at getting this wrong and right and figuring this out. But as we open our text today, 1 Samuel 14, verse 1, I want to make a couple comments about friendship just from this passage, and then we'll go on and talk a little bit more and with pastoral sort of practical wisdom and say, well, how do we actually cultivate that? But verse 1, it says, One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Now, just for a little bit of backdrop, there's a war going on between the Philistines and Israel, but the war is a little bit at a stalemate, and they aren't really sure how to advance this. And it's, it's kind of seems like Jonathan was involved in starting the fight, and now Jonathan has it in his heart to end the fight. You know, John Wayne's style, I may not start it, but I can end it, right? And so he says, and, and, but what's interesting here is that he needed to tell someone else about this. Jonathan does not attempt this on his own. And I think what we recognize is we all need friends that we can trust. We need friends that we can trust. Now, what's also interesting is the beginning of the verse says he's the son of Saul. And then the end of the verse says, and he did not tell his father. Now, who is a son supposed to trust if he can't trust his father? Some of you know that pain. You're like, well, I wish I could call my dad, but my dad's a total mess. I wish I could pour out my thoughts to my dad, but my dad, no. Others of you, it's like, no, my dad was great, but he's not alive anymore. But there's a certain sadness. What's sad in this story, and I think this little verse one right at the beginning sort of introduces a note of sadness because you've just, we've just been told that Saul is no longer going to be the king of Israel. The kingdom will not pass on through his family line. Who pays the price for that? Jonathan. Who pays the price for Saul's disobedience? Well, lots of people, including his son. Some of you are in the room and you know what it's like to pay the price for your dad's or your parents' or your grandparents' sins. And so we need friends we can trust, but sometimes it's not the people that we had hoped. We had hoped, maybe Jonathan had hoped he could have talked to his dad. I mean, look, not only trusting your dad, but your dad's the king. Like if you're going to do a mission on the battlefield and your dad's the king, that should be your first call. Hey, pops, I got an idea. We can do this, father and son. But he doesn't tell his dad. Why? Because his dad's kind of a doofus. 
We need friends. We can, but here's what happens. When, when the people closest to you, the people that you think you should have been able to trust, let you down, you know what happens? You start to build walls around your heart. And then you decide, well, I'm not trusting anyone. I'm Batman. I work alone and in the dark with bats. The Lego Batman movie is a wonderful, playful critique of the lone hero, by the way. But this is what happens to us. You feel disappointed by the people closest to you. So then you say, well, I'm not trusting anyone. But notice, even though Jonathan can't trust his father, he decides to open up and share with someone else. We all need people we can trust. Sometimes we believe this illusion that the Christian life is a solo expedition. The Christian life is about the lone adventurer going out into the great spiritual unknown. But even though faith is deeply personal, it is never private. Even though faith is deeply personal, it is never private. We all need friends that we can trust. As it goes on, the story goes on in verse 4. It says, within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on one side. This is a lot of battle detail here. It's kind of interesting. A rocky crag on the other side. Okay, I get it. Stuck between one rock and a hard place. Okay, got it. Verse 6, then Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come and let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Now, that's not like just Israel trash talk. Um, What that was referring to is circumcision was a sign of being the covenant people of God. And so to refer to the Philistines as uncircumcised was a way of saying these are people not only who are outside the covenant, but they're enemies of it. They're enemies of God and of his people. And so Jonathan's saying, look, we're not here to play nice with the enemies of God. And and, and there, there is an enemy. In the New Testament, we know that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but there's still an enemy. There's still an enemy who opposes God and his people. And so Jonathan names the enemy, and then he says, It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by a few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Now hang on a minute. Do all that is in your heart? I mean, what is this, a Disney movie? (laughs) Follow your heart, Jonathan. Listen to your heart. I'm with you. Now listen. As generic advice, that's pretty crappy advice. Like as a bumper sticker, that's lousy. Do all that is in your heart. You don't go up to someone that you've just met and say, Hi, Susie, I'm so-and-so, what a great to meet you. Whatever's in your heart today, just do it. What? No, that's, that's lousy advice as generic advice. But as the words from a friend who knows you, it's a wonderful thing to hear. You see, only someone who knows you well enough to trust you can say, do all that is in your heart. And that's the second thing. We need friends who trust us. Friends who know us well enough to trust us. You see, that armor bearer, probably this wasn't his first battle with Jonathan. This probably wasn't his first fight. Jonathan didn't find him on like rentanarmorbearer.com, right? These two had probably been in battles before. And so when Jonathan says, Listen, let's go do this. The armor bearer's like, yeah, man, do what's in your heart. Do what you wish. Let's go. And the the picture that comes to mind, and I hate using an illustration from the Patriots. (laughs) I really don't like to. But the truth is I do respect great teams and great athletes. 
cheating aside. And uh, <laughs> there, was this, there was this clip from the Super Bowl where Tom Brady is in the huddle. It's in the fourth quarter of the game. What is it? Is it six to three or something? Just, in, you know, exciting like that. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and Brady's in the huddle, and he says to his guys, his guys that he's done battle with, particularly Edelman and Gronk. I mean, they've been through the fire together, those three. And Brady says to them, he says, okay, guys, okay, I'm not making, any more, I'm not making another mistake from now until the end of the game, which is a heck of a thing to say. But that he's feeling this confidence now. I'm not going to make another mistake from now until the end of the game. And Edelman in the clip goes, all right, we're with you. Let's go. Let's go. That's what a friend who knows you can say. That's what a friend who's been with you in fourth quarter battles and close games and grind out wins can say. All right, let's go. Let's do it. And Jonathan's armor bearer is, a, is someone who knows him well enough to trust him. We need friends like that. We need friends who know us well enough to say, look, if you just posted this on Facebook, people would be like, what? That's weird, man. Or that's pretentious. That's so braggy. That's a little cocky, don't you think? But friends who know you well enough will say, that's in your heart. Do what's in your, let's go. Let's go. We need friends who trust us. And then the second half of that verse, verse 7. He says, do what's in your heart, everything that you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. I'm with you. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. We need friends who will join us in the fight. Friends who will actually join us in the fight. See, the friends who say, yeah, man, I'm behind you. Like, way behind you. <laughs> you know? There you go. That sounds great, Jonathan. And he's like, I'm with you, heart and soul. Like, I'm going to fight alongside you. When I say I'm with you, I mean I'm with you. Look. When you get that phone call or that doctor's visit or that bad report, you need more than people who from afar say, hey, sorry. You need people to show up. You need people to show up at the hospital. You need people to show up at your home. One of the best things to do for people in need is not offer your pontifications on suffering but just your presence, just like show up. And, and, and actually, and I've been so guilty of this even in, in, with, with you as a church, but sometimes the worst question to ask a person in need is, what do you need right now? Because usually when something terrible has happened, you're so disoriented, you don't even know what you need. So the best friends are the ones who just show up with bags of groceries and be like, I don't even want you to have to think about going to the store right now. So here's a bunch of supplies. Here's a, here's a meal train. We've already got that set up. Just show up. Join them in the fight. Like, actually be there. Jonathan's armor bearer joins him in the fight. And I've, I was thinking about all the, all the situations I've been in over the years that maybe are not always a fight, not a battle, but a situation where the circumstances have you outnumbered. You ever had that? 
where you feel like, oh no, the business has grown too fast, or oh my goodness, we, our family has grown too fast, and I don't know what to do, and you feel out, or, or some new season has introduced a, 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 a challenge that is bigger than what you think you can do on your own. I was thinking about all those moments for me. Uh, almost 19 years ago, I moved out to Colorado Springs, and I was coming to intern at New Life Church, to be a worship intern at New Life Church. And I'd just broken up with my girlfriend, who is now my wife, so the story ended well. <laughs> but I didn't know it then. And moved out here, and in my 1996, I think, black Jeep Cherokee, with all my worldly belongings, which was not much, <laughs> Sitting next to me on the drive was John Egan. We were both coming out because our friend Brent was getting married and we were both in the wedding. I was moving out. John was still had another year of college to do. And that whole drive on I-70 through Kansas, <laughs> we talked and talked and talked. And you know you need friends who will join you in that fight. I'm starting something new. This feels overwhelming. This feels like crazy. And... A couple years later, we, uh, actually, let me pause. The next year, when Holly and I got married, my groomsmen, they did the, the bachelor party that was the most epic spiritual bachelor party of all time. We went out to this ranch somewhere, and every physical challenge had a spiritual meaning. And it was something kind of interesting, you know, like, uh, like, like, you can quit at any time, but if you quit, we're going to call Holly every hour on the hour of the night before your wedding. You know, that's just like the, it was just like the setup, but the idea was endurance and sacrifice and all this stuff. And so they're making me run, which if you know me, it's like, that's like, the, that's torture in itself. And then as I'm running, they're like throwing eggs and whipped cream. I mean, it all represents something, you know, like, <laughs> this is the devil and this is, you know, and I'm like, okay, guys, yeah, here we go, you know. And then they have me jump over a very, very low fence. And, and they're like, this is like when you have that same argument over and over again. They're like, keep jumping over this fence. I'm like, okay, okay, guys. You know? And I remember the end of it, we're at top of a hill. And if you've ever done hills where you roll down, like you just feel totally disoriented and sick. So I'm rolling down the hills. And I'm like, come on, run back up. You know? and, 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 and then they're like, one more hill. This is like another challenge to, to do whatever symbolic thing, you know. And I'm like, guys, I can't do one more role. And my two, I had two best men in my wedding. And two of the guys just grabbed me from either side. And they, they said, come on, we'll do it with you. And they rolled down the hill with me. And we ended up at the bottom of the hill. I just burst into tears because I'm like that. And, and, and so did they. And, and all of us knew that all of a sudden that was holy ground. And we started to pray and call upon the Lord. But friends who are with you. I think about the, when we were starting New Life downtown. And I think about Jim and Martha and Joy and Leonard. The friends from our Sunday night church who said, start a new congregation? What, what's that? We didn't even know. New Life Church is doing this. It's becoming a multi-congregation. We didn't have the language for that. We didn't know what the model was. We're like, mobile church downtown. Sure, we can take that hill. It's like, okay, let's do it then. And here we are. 
couple years ago, late 2016, New Life Downtown's growing. It was at a different place. It needed more than I could provide. I, we needed more. I was being asked to uh, step in as, as one of the associate senior pastors at New Life as a whole and help provide leadership in other ways. And I thought, I'm outnumbered. I, there's, there's more here. So I, call, I picked up the phone and called one of my groomsmen in my wedding, Jason Jackson. I said, so I don't know what's happening in your life and church work and ministry right now, but you wouldn't want to come out here, would you? And all of a sudden, I'm with you heart and soul. I think about Brian and Amy around the same time, just this, they're in transition. Brian picks up the phone, calls me, hey, just trying to discern what the Lord has next for us. Brian and I were in eighth grade together, singing Richard Marks songs together, is that right? Wherever you go, whatever. <laughs> Trying to work on our charm game. Um, and here we are. I unapologetically, unapologetically believe that if you're going to do something for the Lord, you better have the right people around you. There, 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 it's not a weird thing. Of, well, uh, if, whether you're running a business, whether you're leading your family, you better have the right people around you who will actually join you in the fights. Don't believe the, the, the lie that there's a singular heroic American who pulls himself up from his bootstraps. That's, that's never been the case. Even the young wizard Harry Potter had Ron and Hermione. <laughs> Everybody needs somebody. You all need to have friends who join you in the fight. You gotta have so let's stop and talk about that for a minute. Because you're, maybe you're sitting here listening to this and you're like, well, good for you, Glenn. Must be nice. <laughs> I don't know how to do that. I'm going to take a few moments and just give you a little practical wisdom. Can we do that this morning? Right? What does it take? How do we build trustworthy friendships? Look, we could say so much about this. But let me just offer three things today about how to build trustworthy friendships. The first is take a risk. Take a risk. Psychologists tell us that trust is the result of a risk survived. Trust is the result of a risk survived. So you say, well, I don't have anyone I can trust. Have you ever taken the risk of vulnerability? Well, no, because I don't have anyone I can trust. And you're like, right, but chicken or the egg here. Now, what I'm not saying is just vent everything. You know, this is not like Facebook oversharing, you know. Dear 972 friends, this is my week. Which of you is my friend? You know, not, not like that. But you have a sense of a few people, and you take the risk of vulnerability, and then you say, oh, well, that worked okay. They didn't judge me. They weren't mad at me. They didn't give me a whole sermon. I already got that on Sunday. <laughs> and you survive that. It takes a risk. C.S. Lewis, when he wrote his book, The Four Loves, talked about different kinds of loves. And one of the loves in there is friendship love, which, can I just say, may be a fading art in our society today, where we eroticize everything. And so everything is always squeezed through the filter of, ooh, how erotic is this cheeseburger? How erotic is this? It's like, what? That's so... And Lewis says there's this deep, rich human love called friendship love. And Lewis says, but because it's a love, any kind of love is a risk. To love at all is to risk. 
And so he says the only place outside of heaven that is safe from the dangers of love is hell. But if you're going to live here on earth and actually have friendships, you got to take a risk. Open up your heart to someone. And then when you survive that risk, take another risk. Then you survive that one, guess what you're accruing? Trust. You're accruing trust every time you take a risk. The second thing is take care. What I mean by this is you're on the opposite end of someone else taking a risk with you. So treat their vulnerability with care. Treat their vulnerability with care. Don't be the person that's like, well, do you know what Martha told me? Huh? What? Because, and, and this is the worst, okay? Like, let's say I'm hanging out with Jason, and I'm like, you know, Jason, Brian was telling me the other day that da-da-da-da-da. What's Jason going to think? Gee, I wonder what Glenn says about me when he's talking to Brian. The worst way to, to undermine trust is by treating other people's stories casually, carelessly. But take care. Because what you are holding in someone else's story is sacred. What you are holding in someone else's brokenness and pain and hopes and fears, that's sacred. That's holy stuff. Take care with it. And then the third thing is take time. You know, we're in this instant society. We want everything to happen fast. You know, someone said to me after the first service, there's no Amazon Prime for friendships? Like, no. You can't expedite this, you know, drop off the perfect friend in two days or a drone if you know, it works for you. There's no instant friendship. It takes time. It's interesting, actually, that some researchers at the University of Kansas decided to study how many hours it takes to form a friendship. And they discovered that it takes a particular kind of time. It takes leisure time. It takes the kind of time where you're doing something but really doing nothing. Do you know what I mean? Like, you're not just working. Maybe you're working, but you're kind of working like you're fixing the car or you're working like you're going on a hike or you're going fishing, which we all know is not really work. And it's just stuff like that. And they discovered that it takes a certain amount of leisure hours. And just the baseline, it takes 40 to 60 leisure hours to develop a casual friendship. Some sort of like acquaintance level. Like, yay, you know, 40 to 60 hours. But then to take it to where you actually transition to being a friend, it takes 80 to 100 hours to actually, 80 to 100 leisure hours. I know some of you Enneagram 3s are like, I'll get it done by the weekend. <laughs> got it, 80 hours, you got it. How many hours in the day? 24 times 6? No, 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 no. Like leisure hours. Like, like just life with one another. Just being there. 80 to 100 hours. But then to actually become good friends, it takes more than 200 leisure hours. 200 leisure hours. That takes, that takes a bit of time. It takes a bit of time. It's why, you know, we've got this premarital day coming up at the end of February. And one of the things we want couples to know is that if you're preparing for marriage, the foundation of this marriage is a friendship. Like, listen, man, intimacy is like a fraction of 1% by hours, waking hours even. But you've got a lifetime of friendship that you've got to learn how to cultivate with one another. Friendship. But the other thing we want young couples to know is 
and your spouse will not be the only friend you need. And this is the other, like not to just put, put the pin in the bubble there, you know, but to say, you know, you, you, you get so wrapped up in this relationship, well, this is all that I, actually, even in marriages, you need friendships beyond it, that they won't be your only friends. So this applies whether you're single or married, roommates, no roommates, we all need these kinds of friendships, and it takes time. But the challenge is you get married, you have kids, or you get a job, you got, you're, you're climbing the corporate ladder, whatever it is, you started a business, you're doing the stuff, and then you're like, I don't have time for friendships. I just got to keep going. And I wonder if that's why Gen Xers are the loneliest generation. They've lived just long enough to be really into it with their families or careers or whatever, and then they look up one day and they're like, crap, I don't know anyone. I don't really actually have friends. I know because several years ago, Holly and I went to um, Queens, New York, where the church, New Life Fellowship, the, the church that created the emotionally healthy spirituality and emotionally healthy relationships courses, and we were attending this emotionally healthy leader kind of summit, and, and they had us, I don't know if it was Pete Scazzaro, his wife Jerry, or, or even you know, Rich Velotas, who it was, but they were leading us through this exercise of doing a rule of life, and their version of the rule, you know, if you can picture it, four boxes and you're supposed to fill in some rhythms and practices. So there's one box, it's like prayer. I'm like, yeah, great, you know, okay, good. Work, like, oh yeah, I got my rhythms there. Rest, I'm like, okay, not so bad. And then the last box was called relationships. And that was fairly easy to be like, okay, yes, you know, my wife and I, we got, we got our rhythms of date mornings or whatever time out where we can keep cultivating and nurturing our friendship because that's important. But I realized there's nothing else on that list. So well, I got friends. I mean, I, I work with most of my friends. My friends, I see them all the time, but I see them in like staff meetings. <laughs> and I remember sitting there trying to write this rule of life and realizing relationships is a box. Like that's something that I need to be intentional about. Why? And it occurred to me, this is the thing that it happens to all of us in certain stages of life. You start to neglect it. And you think, well, those are our College days. God, I'm fine now. I mean, who's got time for that? And I started to get more intentional about it to say, well, what if I got a group of guys once a month, we, we, you know, we met to talk about what we're reading and learning and all this stuff. Because friendship still has to be about something. You realize that one of the reasons that friendships die is because one person is really leaning into this kind of a journey and the other person's like, yeah, I'm not really into, I don't know what you're talking about. So you, there's a fight, but it's a fight they're not joining you in. Does that make sense? Friendships still have to be about some. So, so I began to put a rhythm in. Okay, what about once a month with these guys? And what about once a quarter with these other guys? And what's, what about, you know, and try to find ways to build in leisure time with brothers for me. Because otherwise, it's just not, it doesn't happen on autopilot. Take time to cultivate these things. It's interesting, you know, 3 John 13, so maybe you thought it was a funny New Testament reading, funny text to use, but John says, I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. <laughs> this is like advanced tech in the first century. Parchment and ink? And you could like roll it up and someone over there could read it? Like that's like 
incredible in the first century, right? And John says, I would rather not write to you. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you and greet the friends over there, each by name. I love that. John, you know, John has this legend, this aura about him that he was the beloved disciple. He was the disciple that Jesus loved. And in fact, early Christian legends about John the beloved as he got older to his congregations, they would carry him in as an old man and they would bring him in and say, John, here's one of your congregations and they would carry him in and hold him up and he would just lift one bony finger and say, brothers, sisters, love one another. And then they would carry him out. I mean, that's the, that's the lore of John the beloved. And he would say, love one another. This was a man who knew what it meant to love well. And the last words he writes to his churches are, I'd rather see you face to face. I think that's beautiful. We all know that digital communication has overtaken face-to-face communication. There's no turning back the clock. I'm not trying to be curmudgeonly about, don't text me. I text all the time. All that's fine. I'm on social media, all that stuff too. But can I just say, cultivate the art of in-person, embodied relationships with one another. Understand what it means to look someone in the eye and face-to-face and greet them warmly and to greet them by name. Listen, this is probably a church that's too big for everyone to know everyone by name. But the value is not that I know everyone's name. The value is that everyone is known by name. Does that make sense? That means you are this to one another. This is why I think Paul realized this too. In all of his letters, he talks to them about how they should treat one another. Be kind to one another. Be tenderhearted to one another. Forgiving one another. Because at some point, the friendships need to work this way and not all towards the funnel this way. That, that we've got to take responsibility and care for one another. And it's going to take more time. And it can't just happen over tech. It's got to happen face to face. Maybe that's what the people over 72 know that we don't. <laughs> that we've lost. Going back to Jonathan, the story in 1 Samuel 14, let's wrap this up. Verse 8, in the story, Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. And if they say to us, wait until they come to you, then we will stand still in our place. We will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them to us into our hand, and this shall be a sign to us. Jonathan is putting a sign before the Lord, and notice how he's talking about God in this. The Lord We'll know that the Lord has given them to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes, which is like ancient Near Eastern trash talk, coming out of the holes where they had hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, now I just picture this with a bit of comedy, okay? I think of these Philistine soldiers as being sort of oaf-like, you know, a little bit and they're like, they're like uh, guys, uh, hey, come up over here. And they're like, why? We've got to show you a thing. <laughs> Just like, what? Like, that's the best you could do? Like, you've, you're trying to ambush these guys, but like your only excuse is, hey, come over here. Why? I've got to show you a thing. You're like, what? Anyway, 
Jonathan, they knew, okay, this is our sign. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has given them. Again, the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. And there was a panic in the camp and in the field and among all the people. So Jonathan and his armor bearer, the verses we skipped, they, they kill a, a bunch of folks. The battle, they, they start, there starts to be confusion. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked and it became a very great panic. And then Saul, who's been hanging out by a pomegranate cave, decides to join the fight. And Saul and all, you know, it was sunny. You know, just kidding. And, so, and Saul and behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow. There was great confusion. And so the Lord saved Israel that day. The story may have started about friendship, but it ends with the salvation of the Lord. You see, friendship is not enough. Friendships are not enough. This is not just like generic human advice that you could hear on some daytime talk show about how to have friends. This is a particular kind of friendship. The kind of friendship that Jonathan is cultivating that we're meant to see, I think, from this story is that the best friendships are the friendships that move us toward friendship with Jesus. The best friendships are the ones that move us toward Jesus. It's not enough to just have friends. Oh, I got friends. I got all kinds of people. You should see the list of, that's coming to my birthday party. Oh, that's great. Listen, two or three faithful friends who lead you over and over again to Jesus are better than a whole multitude of friends who don't know the Lord. Amen. And that may sound like, oh, whoa, what are you saying, Glenn? That sounds so judgy. Listen, this is what Paul said to the Corinthians. He says, don't be deceived. And the Corinthians were easily deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Bad company corrupts good character. You say, well, I've, my Christianity is like my private life. That's what I do in private. That's just my personal, you know, this is what America tells us now. Keep your faith private. This is to yourself. This is your private life. You know, so we're like, okay, just compartmentalize my friendships, but then I'll go over here. I'll compartmentalize my spiritual life, and then I'll just go hang out with whoever I want to hang out with. And the scriptures say to us, it doesn't work that way. Over time, who you surround yourself with will eventually shape you. The company you keep ends up shaping your character. And so friendships are not the point. Friendships that lead you toward Jesus, that's the point. You see, John, that's why Jonathan says to his armor bearer, look, the Lord can save by many or by a few. But what he's looking for are faithful people. People whose hearts belong to the Lord. And actually, I think it's really beautiful that Jonathan says this because in a way, he's echoing the Gideon story that happened in the book of Judges where Gideon whittled his army down to 300. And he, he too put a fleece before the Lord, literally, like a sign. Now Jonathan's like, let's put a sign before the Lord, but I don't got 300, I only got two. And the Lord's like, I'll work with two. But the truth is, God can even save by one. And a few chapters later, David is the one who kills Goliath. A foreshadowing of the son of David, Jesus the Messiah, defeating the enemy and rescuing us himself. Jesus is the friend that sticks closer than any brother. Jesus is the one born for adversity. Jesus is the one who is friend of sinners. Jesus is the one who, when we insisted on treating God like our enemy, he treated us like his friend. Who said, I don't call you servants, I call you friends. And Jesus is the one who endured the loneliness of the cross so that we could become friends of God. Amen. Endured the loneliness of the cross 
so that we could become friends of God. Listen, you don't need a whole Rolodex, a whole long list of I got all, you just need a few. A few faithful friends who will point you back to the friend, the friend forever, the friend who laid down his life for us. Listen, I know that friendship with God talk in church can kind of get hokey sometimes. And so we shy away from that. Like, ooh, I don't want to be so sappy and, you know, Jesus is my friend and blah, 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 blah. I, I get that it can get hokey. But don't get so cynical that you forget that friendship with God is really a thing that is being offered to us. That you really can know him. He really wants you to. You really can hear his voice. You really can wake up every morning and say, good morning, Lord. This is the day that the Lord has made. What's the battle I'm joining you in today, Lord? You really can lay your head on the pillow and say, thank you, Lord. You really can cultivate a friendship with Jesus. Don't be so cynical about the excesses and the hokey stuff that you try to turn into a stoic Christian. That, that friendship with God really is on offer. It's right here. Jesus endured the loneliness of the cross so that we could become friends of God. Would you bow your heads? Some of you, you're here today and you, you realize it's time to cultivate different kinds of friendships. Maybe you, you've had just whatever, whoever was around, work, co-workers, or, but you never, have never really stopped to think, are those the kinds of friendships I should be cultivating? And so maybe the Lord is saying to you today, you've got an opportunity, you've got a chance here. Change that. Others of you, you've never even thought about being intentional. You're like, well, I don't know. I just thought friendships would happen. And maybe the Holy Spirit's saying, no, I want you to join me in this cultivation of that. But for all of us, wherever you are, whether you have the right friends or not right now, all of us can say, what a friend we have in Jesus. All my sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to him in prayer. You have a friend in Jesus. You are not alone. Thank you for joining us today at New Life Downtown. You can return to our website at newlifechurch.org downtown to find out more about the church and how you can get connected. You can email us with any questions that you have. We look forward to getting to know you a little bit better. Feel free to follow us on social media as well. We're ready to welcome you into the family of God at New Life Downtown.